0: Listener supported. WNYC Studios.
1: This is All of It. I'm Allison Stewart. Today's show is All of It's version of a best of show. We call it producer picks. To start us off, producer Jordan Loff, who runs our Get Lit Book Club, has selected our interview with Pulitzer Prize winning author Anthony Doerr. Dorr joined us to talk about his latest novel, Cloud Cuckoo Land, a finalist for the National Book Award. Here's Jordan with more.
2: Cloud Cuckoo Land by Anthony Doerr was one of my favorite books of the year. And because of this job and because I love to read, uh, I go through a lot of books in a year. And this one really stood out to me because of how escapist it felt. Uh, the story goes all the way from medieval times in Constantinople and what is now Turkey uh, to the war in Korea in the 1950s, all the way to present day 2020, and all the way up to a few decades from now in an interstellar spaceship. Uh, Though there is a pandemic in this story, by and large, it felt like a beautiful escape into another world. And it's also a literary love letter to books, which I really, really enjoyed. So I was really excited to get to have Anthony Doerr come on the show and to speak with him a bit about the book. And I just thought his conversation with Allison was so lovely. I especially enjoyed hearing about the map he created to keep all his characters and time periods straight. I always think it's fascinating to get an insight into how authors craft their work and how their mind works. Uh, So I just loved this conversation with Anthony Doerr. I think it's one of the best books of the year. And here's Anthony Doerr speaking about his new novel, Cloud Cuckoo Land.
1: Before we even get to read the first page of your book, I'm opening it on on the dedication page. It reads hang on for the librarians then now and in the years to come did you have a librarian or or a library that was really significant to you that was your special place or your special person
0: I did I did Uh, mom I grew up in rural Ohio outside Cleveland and mom was a science teacher she taught high school kids and came home tired (laughs) you know you don't appreciate how tiring that is until you become an adult But uh, often the library was kind of a de facto daycare center for me and my older brothers. And uh, the Bainbridge Public Library, shout out to them, and the Mayfield (laughs) Public Library back in Cleveland. Those were places that mom would let us roam and while she would grade papers or go do something for herself for an hour. So uh, just the idea that you could walk around those stacks and pick books and take them home for free, it still kind of blows my mind. And that I didn't really have anybody supervising what I took out. I was desperate to try to keep up with the reading tastes of my brothers. And so Mm -hmm. I've always just been amazed that these institutions exist. They're the last indoor public spaces that are warm in the winter and that uh, the collected accumulation of human wisdom is available for people, anybody who wants to study it. And then you get to take it home and learn how to care for public property in your bedroom as a kid. Like those are really important lessons. So In many ways, the whole novel is an homage to Mm -hmm. libraries and librarians, and and each of the five characters builds a relationship at a certain point in his or her life with a librarian.
1: You sound like you were someone who, as a kid, liked to learn. Is that still true?
0: Yeah, of course. I think mom was quite good at instilling that (laughs) enough. I just love, I mean, I love my job, and it's probably similar to yours, Allison, and then I get to spend my days learning and asking questions Mm -hmm. and investigating stuff I'm curious about and I've just always felt so acutely that we just get such a limited time here. You know, if you're so lucky, you get eight decades, and that's like barely anything. The earth is four and a half billion years old. Like, we barely get to be here, and why not learn as much as you can while you're here? And so often I use my projects as a way to rectify one of my billions of ignorances about things. I'm sure I'll die ignorant of most things still, but at least I get to use work as a way to kind of chase these different curiosities. And hopefully the reader gets to feel like she's along that journey too Mm -hmm. with me learning along the way, you know, learning about Constantinople and the Mm -hmm. libraries of the Byzantine Empire. That was stuff I knew nothing about when I come into the project. So often it's uh, my interest in a subject uh, that compels me to start writing a book. And then hopefully that curiosity kind of carries like electricity to the reader.
1: My guess is Anthony Doerr. The name of the book is Cloud Cuckoo Land. Five protagonists. Five. Were, were there always five protagonists or did you have three and then they needed company? Did you have seven and you realized that were too many? How did you <laughs> arrive at five? Five.
0: That's <laughs> a funny question. Um, yeah, my previous book, All the Light We Cannot See, really oscillated back and forth, kind of ping pong back and forth between two protagonists. Mm-hmm. And it was kind of an A, B, A, B structure, although I would vary it in places. And uh, I was about a year into the project, and I still just had two. The original project just started with the walls of Constantinople, which okay. stood for a thousand years, the land walls did, and they withstood 23 sieges, all all unsuccessful. And I knew nothing about them. You know, when I started the project, I remember back to high school history classes where you kind of hit the fall of the Roman Empire, and then the... Teacher takes a sip of water, and then suddenly you're at the beginning of the Renaissance, and a thousand years whisk past. And as a kid, you're like, "Oh, well, nothing much of, must have happened back then." And it wasn't until I get into my, you know, forties that you start to learn all about the amazing work that all these uh, scriptoria and all these uh, schoolmasters and monks did preserving manuscripts in the Byzantine Empire. The walls really helped protect about seventy-five percent of the Greek classics that mm-hmm. we have today. We have about, uh, I think. Over 50,000 texts, 75% of them only exist because they were preserved inside those walls. So I think uh, I had originally just had two protagonists. I had Anna, who you mentioned inside the walls, and Obie on the outside. But then I I realized to really dramatize what a small act of stewardship is, in this case, Anna saves this old book that Mm -hmm. just means something to her. She doesn't think she's doing anything grand. I just think to dramatize that, you have to show it ricochet down through time. And that's when I decided I'm going to try to show this book land into the laps of characters farther down in time. Because I think that's really been my whole journey through Middle Ages, trying to remove myself from the center of my life, watching my kids grow up and trying to learn that really we're all just links in a long chain that's... And that there is no beginning or end, really. It's all about just participating in this great, amazing, fascinating human experiment. And that's what stewards can do. That's what librarians can do. And that's what these characters do, is just make a small act that you don't even realize that centuries hence might affect somebody's life.
1: Anthony, there's a rumor that you had a map, that you created this map with uh, that connected <laughs> all the different <laughs> characters. Is Is this true? And if so, could you please describe it?
0: Of course, sure. Yeah, I'm often drawing the structures of my books to try to understand what this thing is that I'm making. You know, usually that's in the evening after you're done with the detail work of the day, just trying to get a sense of like, where is this going? What does this thing look like? So Often I have like a a pentagon of some type because I have five characters and trying to twine. There's something called a Penrose Pentagon that's all this twining around five points. But then I started to move towards this, it's a postmodern idea that's been around since the 70s, the idea of knowledge being a rhizome, which is just a rootstock. It's kind of this thing without a beginning and an end, and there's no central trunk, and uh, it's multiple. And that's what I really started to think through was the novel as a rhizome with this central underground, all these filaments connecting each other, and then it sends up shoots here and there kind of like an iris. And so I thought of the character stories as these flowers, but all these interconnecting rootlets beneath the ground. And so that, that's the drawing I started to make, trying to draw each of these characters winding around the central text of Cloud Cuckoo Land.
1: My guest is Anthony Doerr. The name of the novel is Cloud Cuckoo Land, a National Book Award finalist. So let's talk about Cloud Cuckoo Land. So threaded through the story, story, what connects these characters is this partially lost story, Cloud Cuckoo Land, and written by Greek writer Antonius Diogenes, who apparently was a real ancient Greek writer. Yes, you, t- you sent me down a rabbit hole <laughs> talking about wanting to learn things. <laughs> so um, why did you choose him as the writer of your fictional story? And what do we know about Antonius Diogenes?
0: Yeah, good question. Well, first, do you, did you know the phrase cloud cuckoo land? Have you ever heard that before? Al? I have
1: heard that. And I, in like, it, I think in some political context, like once in not a kind way about somebody else's idea. Like, that's, that's right. That's a I think that's com- really
0: idea. common, especially in British. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. In British English or Irish English. If you say, um, you know, we're going to solve the energy crisis tomorrow, you know, you you might be accused of living in cloud cuckoo land or having your head in the clouds. Uh, So there is often a kind of disparaging element to it. But the phrase has been around long before English. It's 2,400 years old. (laughs) Greek playwright Aristophanes in this play, The Birds, as these two fools leave Athens they say there's too many lawyers basically in Athens and they decide to found a new city with the help of the birds in the sky called cloud cuckoo land and it's been fascinating to watch it kind of ricochet down through time as i started to track it as it entered at the english language and it really kind of at first it was kind of cuckoo cloud town or cuckoo cloud place and it settles into cloud cuckoo land in the early 1900s And for me, I thought, okay, first I'm watching my kids grow up with all these dystopian narratives surrounding them all the time. It seems like every time I go downstairs, there's another planet exploding on the TV. So I wanted to kind of explore utopian questions in the novel, and here's one of the very first Western utopian stories that was written down. So, I wanted to ask questions. What does it mean for us to hope? What does it mean for us to dream of distant places where life is better and suffering is limited? And then uh, I found out that novels were written in the ancient world. We have five ancient Greek novels that have survived in full, and we have the titles of at least 20 others. And one was written by this guy named Antonius Diogenes, and it sounds like it was a very interesting novel. The novel's totally lost, but we have a ninth century book review of it it's like a novelist's worst nightmare where your novel disappears from the world 800 years after it's written but a review of it still exists to this day and it sounds like it was a really fascinating almost postmodern book it was uh, it involved a trip around the world it may have been the first science fiction novel cuz it involved a trip to the moon had a bunch of interlocking characters and kind of nested narratives and it was divided into 24 parts uh, one for each letter of the ancient greek alphabet so as soon as I learned that, and there's so much potential in a lost book, I thought, I'm going to invent a book that he could have written, explore utopian questions in it, uh, you know, in this invented book, and then have it land in the laps of each of these five characters.
1: Anthony, it's interesting. You've mentioned your kids a few times in this interview. How has being a father affected you as a writer?
0: Oh, gosh, I think in all really, really positive ways. I mean, at the very beginning, uh, you know, as so many listeners know, you're just so busy that it makes you very efficient, and that's a good thing. I think, you know, often I get asked you know, why, especially my last three books, have I worked with such short chapters? (laughs) I think often it was because the kids were little, and I just had limited amounts of time here and there. So often I would have just an hour and a half, so I would work through 800 words and make them as crisp and clean as I could before I had to go do something else. But more importantly, I think you know, like we were talking about earlier, it really helps decenter you yourself and your own narrative, your own needs from your life, and and it's helped me as I've gotten older and starting to think about my own mortality. I think it's really helping me understand that you know our role here on earth isn't necessarily to pursue our own pleasure, but to try to guarantee a safe place for our kids to grow up in, and whatever that means to you, whether that means it's a you know. We get help our nation own up to its own history, whether that means we try to guarantee a comfortable climate for them or a consistent food. Uh, there's so many w- different ways to think about that, but certainly that's what having kids is done for mean.
1: My guest is Anthony Doerr. The name of his new novel is Cloud Cuckoo Land. So the protagonists all have something in them that sets them apart from the society in which they live. Anna's a young orphan who can read. Omir was born with a cleft palate. Zeno is gay in the 40s and 50s. Seymour has trouble regulating sensory intake, and Constance can't seem to adjust to life on the rocket ship like other kids. What attracts you? That's
0: really good. Good description.
1: What what attracts you about writing those on the outside and on on the margins?
0: Uh, Great question. I, I was listening to you interview Dave earlier, and he said something that I could just so relate with. It's just like, you know, I'm different. I was just a little different growing up, and I always felt that, and I couldn't identify why, and I think that's okay. And I'm just drawn to narratives of difference a little bit, I think. Um, in, in many ways, of course, every person. There is no normal, and there is, you know, every person is is utterly unique, and the more you engage in the idiosyncrasies of every person, the more you realize how silly it is to suggest that any person is a normal person. I just think we're all just magnificent and fascinating, and the farther down you go, the more interesting everybody gets. But in this case, I thought you know, this is a way to show linkage between these five people. I know that a reader will be grasping in the first 100 or 150 pages for understanding how these characters can possibly come together when they're not living in the same time or, of course, the same places. So to anticipate those convergent points, I wanted to give them these different kinds of links, and one certainly is how they view the world and how they're viewed by the people around them.
1: You know, part of we've been talking about the loss of the written word, the loss of stories, the loss of histories. You know, you've got this computer in the novel, Sybil, who can supposedly contain all the knowledge of humanity over the course of, of humankind. What concerns you about the potential loss of, I understand, knowledge, but particularly of stories and the stories we tell?
0: Yeah, really great question. I think really this novel travels along the whole continuum or the dialectic between preservation and stewardship and loss and erasure. Uh, The best way I can answer that is I think about my own childhood, my my brothers were off in college, my mom sits us down, sits me and my dad down and says, Grandma's moving in with us and she's been diagnosed with something called Alzheimer's disease. Mm. Never heard of it. I'm maybe 14 or 15 and over the next couple of years, I watched this disease, I watched dementia take everything that was my grandmother. Um, You know, There were moments of hilarity and humor but also moments of devastating sadness. And of course, you can't articulate those things as a teenager, but I think all my adult life I've been preoccupied with the fragility of memory because of that experience. And so I think even all all of my work, but especially this novel, has questions about this coming erasure that's coming for all of us and uh, the anxiety I feel about that and also trying to get to a place of acceptance also. And so there's something so metaphorically connected to me about the erasure of lost texts. The fact that, you know, while I'm reading this, the, you know, that you learn like there's so many texts have been erased from the world. Sophocles wrote a hundred plays, maybe seven survived the, you know, the seventh century BC poet Sappho, we think she wrote 10,000 lines of poetry, 650 are left. You know, Euripides wrote 90 plays, 19 are left. So the, everything's always being erased and it's only because stewards have decided to keep something, that uh, things last. And so when you think about all the indigenous wisdom, for example, that's Mm. been stripped out of the world, I just wonder, you know, what, when you're a kid, you just think, to go back to your very first question about libraries, you're a kid, you think those are just like leaves on trees, like libraries are just here. But then as you get older, you realize, no, like brilliant, brave people have decided to put them in communities and sustain them and fund them. And uh, so I just think I'm trying to explore questions about that in the novel. Of course, all things, even books, they're built from a substance, usually paper, that deteriorates. The acids in paper itself will chew them up eventually, but they are an effective technology to evade erasure, one of the most that we've invented. And so I'm asking questions in the future sections about AI and Sybil around the same thing. We think we're going to build this comprehensive, all-knowing source of information. But of course, you know, think about the claims that were made for cd roms 20 years ago, you know, <laughs> the, these claims, you know, things, things don't always work out. And so I think, you know, there's this moment when I was writing the novel when this girl Constance realizes Sybil does have limitations, mm-hmm. that uh, Sybil isn't oh, a godlike figure necessarily in her life. That, that was an important moment for me anyway in the novel to realize all the promises of technology, Mm -hmm. there are still limitations.
1: That was my conversation with author Anthony Doerr about his latest novel, Cloud Cuckoo Land. Our producer, Jordan Loft, picked it as one of her favorite interviews of 2021.